welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 39 for April 21st, 2011. Our 16th episode of the post-motion picture era. So we're coming to a close for the Marvel and the Untold Voyages and the Daily Comic Strip. Cool. I mean, cool. I mean, it is good... To have all of this, especially now we're getting closer to Wrath of Khan, and it's cool to wrap it up and move on. Yep, so t- next week we will do the last issues in each of those three continuities. So, and then after that we'll do a zombie episode, which also kind of ties in with this uh, this era. Cool. So it's good. It's going to be good. I'm looking forward to the zombie. It's y- you, know what, you know what I say about zombies? What do you say? It's the bacon of literature. I thought you said it was the poprikia. I never said that. I I would not say that. I thought you said it was literary potpourri. <laughs> potpourri. No, <laughs> wouldn't say that either. No, no. It is. Uh, it is the bacon. It's the magical bacon of literature. Just add it to anything, and it makes the literature better. Like Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> So they're going to make a movie out of that. Yeah. Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how that could be good, but I heard the comic book was. There's a comic book? That's what I heard. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I knew that the novel was written by the same guy who did Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies. Oh, really? Yeah. And I know that there's a graphic novel of that one, but I haven't read it. Mm. Well, I've read the Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies. Which I know you weren't crazy about it. I started it. I didn't finish it. Yeah. But I do like me some zombies, so I might pick it back up one of these days. Exactly. So, definitely read, what, Death Troopers? Oh, the Star Wars one? Yeah. The Star Wars one. So that was pretty good. Got to see Han and Chewie. And, and so now I'm looking forward to the to the Star Trek one. Coming up here soon. Yep. Two weeks and you'll get... Excellent. All right, so uh, I guess we'll just jump straight into these. I'm going to be synopsizing Marvel number 16, then Ken will do Marvel number 17, and then I'll finish it up with the 19th story arc of the comic strip. That's great. And what's the title for number 16? Let me jump over there because it's a good one. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It is entitled, There is No Space Like Gnomes. Oh, God. (laughs) <laughs> oh, yeah, and, gnomes. and the pun and the puns keep coming. Yeah, so, so when we say gnomes, we're literally talking cone-hatted, bearded gnomes, little guys. Yeah, they're like, uh, well, let's just get into it. Yeah. So this story came out October 1981. The writer was Martin Pascal, pencils Luke McDonald, inking was Day and Trapolina, or how are you pronouncing that, Trapini? Inking by Day and Trapini. I would say Trapini. Uh, right. Color was Carl Gafford. 
letterer Janice Chang, editor Al Milgram, and editor-in-chief Jim Shooter. The cover really sets the tone for this story. We get pictures of Spock and Kirk's head, and Spock has his hand extended towards the reader. In his hand is a frightened gnome. Yes, a gnome, pointy hat, and everything. And they are so enraptured by this little small guy that they don't notice that there's another gnome riding atop a bat, swooping down on them with a mace held over his head, ready to smash the little guy's hat in. So, like I said, sets the tone for the story. You know you're you're reading comic gold here. Alright, so, on the planet Valorant in the Gamma Atris system, Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Chekhov, and an Andorian named Themon and some random security officer beamed down 497 meters away from the location of a local colony. The Enterprise is there to provide annual supplies, but they are not able to contact the colony as they were approaching. Spock scans the region and does not pick up anything but a dozen meter-tall bipeds nearby. Scotty reports from the ship that he's been scanning and they have discovered that there's life forms underneath the surface but they're even smaller than the uh, the meter tall guys that Spock was picking up earlier but they're definitely not picking up anything from the colonists the away party eventually finds their way to the wreckage of the colony encampment we find out that Chekhov and the Andorian uh, Themon are actually an item he refers to her as his Sadrushka which is the Andorian equivalent of Imzadi. So they, they are really together. As he's comforting her because she was a little upset, a man-shaped monster breaks in and is perhaps trying to speak to them in a very Frankenstein-like manner uh, when suddenly he is gravely injured by an invisible attacker. McCoy and the injured creature are beamed up to the Enterprise as several smaller hands grab Themon and pull her into the darkness. Chekhov is able to blast a few of them with his phaser, but several more arrive and surround the away team and start attacking with rocks wrapped up in rope and little hammers. Meanwhile, at the original beam-in location, Lieutenant Sternbeck, the random security officer I spoke of earlier, is still guarding the supplies when some gnome-looking creatures break out of the ground and attack him, and he is quickly knocked out. Back at the original battle, the small troll-looking people are able to succeed in kidnapping Thimon while Chekhov is fighting with some other troll-looking guys. Kirk and Spock are also occupied, and it looks like the Federation is about to lose their fight when suddenly some pointy-hatted gnomes start popping out of the ground and attacking the creatures with crossbows and the hammers. Back on the Enterprise, Chapel and McCoy are working on the injured creature, and they discover that he was once human. He's actually shrinking and changing right before their eyes. They're able to repair his wounds from earlier, but they are very perplexed as to why he's mutating. Back on the planet, Kirk talks to the gnome leader named Torval. The meeting takes place with Torval on Kirk's knee, which of course is the most dignified way for two leaders to talk. And it's very comical to see the little, the little gnome on his knee. Torval tells him that the original colonists were gone, 
And then Chekhov is worried about Thamon's abduction, logically. But Kirk pretty much dismisses it, saying that she must have gone off to explore solo. And instead of looking for her, they decide they're going to go back to the supplies and check on Lieutenant Sternbeck. When they arrive there, Sternbeck is not able to recall who knocked him out. And Kirk orders him and the supplies to beam back up to the ship while they start their search for Thamon. Shortly after the supplies are beamed back to the ship, the crates erupt and a large bat flies out with a feral-looking gnome astride it. He starts attacking random things aboard the ship and eventually is able to escape uh, from the teleportation room. Then the second crate explodes and another bat-riding gnome flies out and starts destroying stuff. And Steinbeck is actually attacked with a bola and the little guy is able to escape throughout the ship, along with the first one. Back on the planet, the away team is taken to the gnome village. There we learn that the gnomes are actually planted there by aliens many, 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 many years ago. Spock surmises that the gnomes on Earth must have also been planted by the same aliens. So the gnomes tell them that the trolls are actually very real, and that they are the ones that took them on as food. Kirk contacts the Enterprise to check in on the status of the scanners, because I guess they were broken earlier. But he's informed that the uh, calibrations have been delayed due to the havoc created by the bat-riding creatures. One creature makes it onto the bridge, destroys Ahura's station, cutting off communications. A security guard is able to destroy one of the bolas with his phaser, causing the gnome to become off-balance, and he actually falls off the bat. Once he falls, the bat vanishes, and they are able to capture and take the little guy to the brig for some questioning. On the planet, Torval's people are able to take Kirk to the troll's cave. Torval cannot go any further because, obviously, the little gnome would not stand a chance against a troll. But Kirk and company go ahead and uh, part ways with Torval and enter the cave. Once they've gone a few meters into the cave, there's that cave-in... And we see that the trolls have gathered around the crew, and looks like they're about to start their attack. Meanwhile, back on the Enterprise, the second intruder has been captured and put in the brig along with the first one. The security men say that they've looked them up in the computer banks, and that these little creatures are actually called goblins. Yes, goblins. So we have gnomes, trolls, and goblins. The goblins look like a cross between the trolls from earlier and the gnomes. So it's as if the gnomes and the trolls had a baby. It would be a goblin. But the goblins also have the pointed hat, which they are very reluctant to ever part with. As a security man is trying to feed the prisoners, one of them tries to escape and is zapped by the force field. In so doing, his hat falls off. And before everyone's astonished eyes, the goblin slowly turns into a gnome. Communications are now functioning, and Scotty and McCoy give updates to Kirk, who has reunited with Thamon. It turns out that the trolls are not savages at all, but they're just unable to communicate with the crew. McCoy confirms that the creature they beamed up and worked on earlier has completely transformed into a troll due to a virus. But he has worked up an antidote that's going to cure him. Kirk orders it to be tested immediately. McCoy tests it and quickly beams down to the planet to start administering the antivirus to the other colonists. Once he inoculates them, they quickly return to their Andorian and or human forms. 
they break out and confront Torval and the other gnomes, uh, which is it's only Torval and and one other girl gnome. Uh, it seems that the other gnomes are not there anymore. It turns out that the colonists were turned into trolls by Torval because he wanted to get rid of them. And then when the Enterprise beamed up one of the trolls, Torval sent two gnomes dressed up as the goblins to kill him before the Federation could find out what was going on. With all of Torval's trickery exposed, he goes all out and commands the trees to start attacking the crew. As the crew are captured and their communicators are dematerialized, Kirk pulls out his trump card. He whips out one of the captured gnomes' hats, places it upon his head, and now he is able to control the ground to swell up and encase the attacking gnomes. With the gnomes captured, Spock and Chekhov are able to shoot the hats off of them, and thus all of the illusions are then gone. So then we have a brief epilogue where Tavald explains that uh, there's only four gnomes remaining, him, the, the woman gnome that was there on the planet, and the two that are in the brig of the ship. Uh, they just wanted to be left alone, and that, that is why they attacked the colonists and the Enterprise crew. Uh, the caps are some type of matter-to-energy transfer device. Kirk seems to fall for this uh, sad story and relocates the colonists and requests that the Federation mark Valerian as off-limits. Then we get to the best part of the whole thing. There is a final joke where Scotty says that the gnomes should have known that they would be discovered at some point because the Federation's motto is to go where gnome men has gone before. <laughs> so, if they would have taken out the gnome BS, story <laughs> could have been good. You replace the gnomes with any other type of alien. And they'd they, have magic hats. They didn't have to be magic pointy hats, but they could have had some <laughs> sort of <laughs> some sort of matter transfer helmets or whatever. And the story would have actually worked and been somewhat good. But because they kept trying to shove the gnome business down your throat and the goblin business and the troll business, it really took me out of the story and I did not care for it. <laughs> Neither did I. <laughs> Especially when it became obvious that the hats were magic hats. <laughs> it's like, oh, magic hats. Uh, you know, uh I love literature with magic hats. If I were king, I would require that all stories from now on have magic hats in them. <laughs> ah. Well, do you agree with me that if this story didn't have the gnomes, trolls, and goblins, and they just replaced them with, you know, a a, a random alien and mutating people to turn them into monster-looking things and not actually call them trolls, would you have been okay with this story? Well, it depends on how they executed it, but that would have been better. Yeah, I mean, come on. Yeah, it's, it's like it, it, uh, when they get a little ridiculous with stuff like this, you wonder what the writers had in mind. I mean, are they are they are they that hard pressed to come up with something new, a new spin on things? Um, you know, rather than the same thing over and over. We commented a few uh, episodes ago about. Oh, Jesus, seems like they're always saving some planet loaded with people that has an asteroid coming towards it. Well, okay. So this is, give it points for uniqueness. <laughs> Who would have thought they would have a, uh, a gnome episode? But uh, it is ridiculous. I don't know what they're thinking about when they do stuff. Yeah, I mean, Yoda is a little diminutive little alien that 
that works. They could that have, kicks butt. But they could have had another little, you know, the size of the alien didn't bother me that much. It was just that he's dressed like a gnome. He looks like he should be in somebody's yard. You know? <laughs> On Travelocity commercials, something. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and that the the hat thing, I mean, is it supposed to be magic or is it supposed to be some sort of advanced oh, it's high technology? Tech. It, it's supposed to be high tech. Right. But it's a pointed hat. And, it's a pointed red hat. And Kirk's able to take one off of the goblin and put it on his head, and, he's and he looks control it just fine. Ex- yeah, exactly. That's a point I had had made. He looks quite uh, quite handsome in the hat, and immediately, first time he puts it on, he's able to use the powers apparently better than the trolls could, because he's able to overcome them using their own technology. Yeah, perfect. Maybe Makes perfect he just, sense to me. Just surprised him, but but no, I agree with you. It's just it's ridiculous. Well, I mean, they do that in so much other things. I mean, like uh, you know, like Superman, he spent his whole life mastering his powers, and then mm-hmm. some other Kryptonians show up on Earth, and they're able to do everything he can, and sometimes better. And right. you're just like, come on, when did they learn how to do heat vision and all the other good stuff? <laughs> Very good. You're right. I think I'm going to take this picture of Kurt with the hat on and make like a little birthday card out of it. Happy birthday. From Kirk with a magic hat. <laughs> Although, <laughs> you know, it, it, it doesn't look incredibly like William Shatner, though. A little bit, but... Yeah. Well, sometimes it does. It's The artwork is very hit or miss on this one. It is. I mean, it's okay artwork, except I gotta say, I gotta comment... Uh, the Enterprise pretty much looks like uh, poo-poo. <laughs> yeah, there's some really bad shots of the Enterprise. Oh, there's a couple shots here where the nacelles are too low, but they've got one shot in particular where the nacelles are below the engineering section. Yeah, is that on page 16? Is it 16? It's 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 somewhere near the end. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. It's like, huh? I mean, oh, God. Yeah, it's it's bad looking. It actually, it looks it looks like they they've organized it kind of like a Klingon battlecruiser or something, you know, ha- having a kind of lower like that. Right. It's just why? I mean, if you want to mix it up, you're sick of of drawing the Enterprise. Okay, I can kind of understand that. But they draw it bad. They they draw it different in almost every panel. Um, the pylon between the engineering section and the saucer section is wrong. Uh, and one in particular, it looks like it's coming right into the center of the saucer section. It's just not good. Yeah. No. Sorry. And and that's been a case, especially with the... It seems like the Marvel is more guilty of that than the comic strip. The comic strip, the yeah. ships usually look pretty good. Yeah. Uh, but the Marvel or, issue seems to be all over the place on the <clears throat> Enterprise design. Yep. And I know that I'm sure we sound like a broken record since we bring it up every single time, but... I think it warrants bringing up because if you're buying this every month because you want to read a Star Trek story, you would expect the the ships at least to look like the ship. Right. I mean, I can forgive characters not looking like exactly like their actor counterparts, but the ship shouldn't change. No. Nope. But, Get it right, man. Get but, it right, man. Did you... I mean... 
towards the very beginning when they first beam down to the ship and they see the creature, the first troll for the first time, mm-hmm. there's a shot that's looking straight up Spock's nose. <laughs> it's like, like one hairs of the worst pictures ever. It's just, it's just odd. It's like, why do you, I mean, I could understand later when you're trying to give perspective from the gnome's point of view that there's a lot of like upshots. Oh. But this one is before the gnomes show up, and yet we're still getting a up Spock's nose shot. Yeah, yeah I, I see what you're talking about. I see that one. Anyways. Also, and what's the deal with the size of the tricorder? It's about the size of a toaster oven. It's like you know, they beam down, they start scanning for the colonists, and Spock is carrying this huge, huge tricorder around. I mean, why did they make it so big? I don't get it. Well, it's like the old one, the old Geiger counter looking. No, it's it's... It, oh, well, um, actually, in the new movie, they had a tricorder design. It's kind of like what they've got here, but it's like at least two times as big. I mean, it's even bigger. It, it, this thing's bigger than the original tricorder. I mean, look at the – there's one particular one where, they, where you see your first view of the geodesic dome of the uh, colonist structure, mm-hmm. and that tricorder is huge. Yeah, it is. It's pretty big. Don't know why. Don't know why. Come on, guys. Can't you draw something a little more reasonably smaller? Uh, one thing I did, I think they drew well was Ohura's upper torso. Okay. In one particular panel uh, around the middle of the book, where she's on the uh, on the bridge while Scotty's doing one of his logs. Okay. Looks good. good. Why her upper are, are, torso? Are you, because that's what they're showing, and it's. And it's well drawn. <laughs> Hold on, I'll look for it. <laughs> well, we don't want to drag things down. But around the middle, Scotty's doing one of his... Uh... Is it before or after her console is destroyed? Uh, I th- think it's before. Um... Although it might be later. Okay, now you're going to force me to look for it? Okay. That's all right. Let's... Um... I- I- I've seen her torso before. <laughs> and and she's quite trim, trimmer than uh than uh Nichelle. Nichelle, that's it. Nichols ever was. So, well, maybe when she was younger. Right. So I really like that Chekhov had a uh a, a pretty significant uh girlfriend in this one. Yes. Mhm. It's kind of a shame that she just comes out of left field. I wish they would have brought her into earlier issues before she just suddenly shows up and, you know, they're such a hot item. Right. But Chekhov doesn't get a lot of uh, a lot of screen time in these books. No, he doesn't. So it's good to see that. No, Although really... an Andorian, it's like, I don't know, I'd have a problem with those antennae. You would? I would. I think that's kind of. I think that it's a little off-putting, or would be off-putting for me. Sorry. <laughs> hmm. Well, for any Andorians, obviously not for you. <laughs> for any Andorians listening, Ken does not speak for the podcast. His views are only his own. <laughs> you you have a you have a antenna fetish. <laughs> Do I antenna fetish? Huh. Interesting. Uh, anyways, I, I I don't know. I liked it. Um, you know, Star Trek always wants to team uh, cross cross populate different species. <laughs> Showing because in the DC comics, um, the first volume, 
uh, or the first run that DC Comics did of Star Trek, there was a Klingon man and a human woman that that end up getting married, and it's a it's a overarching long story arc. Um, and I, as a kid, when I was reading that, I'm like, man, they always want to cross populate things. I, I I guess at the time, I didn't really get the interracial undertones and things like that of what mm-hmm. they were really trying to talk about. But yeah. you know, as a kid, I'm like, man, why can't they just human human or Klingon Klingon? I didn't understand <laughs> why you know Spock had to be half human and everybody had to be half something else. Right. Anyways, anyways, uh, Chekhov having a girlfriend, liked it. Hope she's in at least the last issue. Hope she's not just a, a one issue. One issue throw off. I, I kind of have a feeling that she will be, but I don't know for sure. I tend to agree. But we'll find out. She was definitely not in the second story. Oh, that's right. You're right. Well, but nobody from the Enterprise is really in that one. But we'll talk about that in a second. Good point. I forgot that we already read one since this. Yeah, but we have one more. Yep. Uh, so that's really all I have. What else you got, Ken? Um, I don't uh, really think I have anything. I already mentioned all my my problems I had with some of the artists artistry. Yeah, I was kind of I was kind of put off at the beginning of the comic where Kirk. Spock and McCoy are beamed down on the planet and they're looking around transporting and then I saw the glowing behind them with three more figures silhouettes and it's like I was like what's what's that I mean some kind of reflection or something but they've got antennae and then it turned out to be they didn't they didn't all beam down together so apparently the first three beamed down completed that transport and then they beamed down the next three members of the landing party. Right. That was... So that that threw me off a little bit, but it's like, why did they not go down all together like they normally do? But whatever, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's the security guy, uh, Themon, and Chekhov. Right. So, you know, I just never saw it that way before. It just threw me off a little bit until I realized what was going on. Yeah. I kind of like that transporter effect, though. The way they, they drew it. Right. I kind of like it. And then when when McCoy beams up back later, I thought it was just a cool visual. Right. Cool. That's all I got. You don't want to talk about the 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 great pun at the end? No. I I see no reason to talk about that. <laughs> now, I got one last thing, and this is the whole yeah. knee thing. Why why would Kirk put the little guy on his knee to have a conversation? Uh, maybe isn't that undignified? More comfortable that way. I would think that you know. If, come if, on over here, little fella. Come up on my knee. Come sit on my knee. Tell tell Santa what what you want for Christmas. <laughs> Say, Mister Noman, do you like movies about gladiators? <laughs> Is that your Peter Graves impression from Airplane? Uh I stole the line from him, but I wasn't trying to Im- impersonate Peter Graves. I would know better than that. I have too much respect for him. Mm. Well, too bad the Mr. Academy uh, of Motion Pictures did not have chose that. not to. I agree with that. Where was he? Why wasn't he there? I, I think don't get it. I, I, the only thing I can think of is he must have been there when they cut the Celine Dion, which I ah! I never understood right. that. Like I don't really. I want to see who you're honoring, not the singer singing the song. Exactly, especially Celine Dion. Yeah. 
Ken does not speak for the podcast. He... <laughs> <laughs> Celine, yeah. yeah. I will agree with you on that one. Antenna's uh, on. So I am. Antenna's on the girl. I won't agree with. But, uh, Celine Dion. <laughs> okay. No, I'm just kidding. All right. Uh, you want to jump straight into issue number 17? I would love to. All the right. title is The Long Night's Dawn. Published date, December 1981. Writer is Mike W. Barr. Artist is Ed Hannigan. Inkers are Palmer and Simmons. Colors, Carl Gafford. Letterer, Parker and Bloomfield. Editor is Al Milgram. Editor-in-chief is Jim Shooter. Yeah. Okay. The cover shows the Enterprise with shields up and deflecting a violent bombardment of rocky material. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, McCoy's heads are presented in circles to the left. They all have agitated, concerned looks on their faces. McCoy, in particular, who, look, who looks to be uh, shouting. In blocky red font in the lower right-hand corner is Where No Man Has Gone Before, the title of the second Star Trek pilot. The cover promises an action-packed issue. Sure does beat... A Gnome Story. Okay. The title page presents a full-page panel containing the Enterprise in orbit around Goran 4. Kirk's log tells us that night is falling on the planet's most populous continent, which is home to over a million people. Kirk states that if the Enterprise crew fails in their mission, those people may never see another sunrise. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are on the bridge discussing the mission. Spock explains that the Federation satellite, a Federation satellite, has been in orbit around the Goranian sun monitor Klingon activity in this disputed area of space. Recently, a random meteorite, meteoroid struck the satellite, altering its path towards Goran 4. As it broke up in the Goranian upper atmosphere, it destroyed distributed uh, its fuel. Though not 100% sure if it's of its effects, that fuel is likely to be toxic to billions of inhabitants on this world. A landing party, the plan is, a landing party will beam down, learn more about the natives, natives' physiology, and make an assessment. Though there is a possible antidote for the adverse effects of the fuel, depending upon the natives' physiology, the cure could be worse than the toxic fuel. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy beam down in native garb into a wooded area outside of a population center. Though they think they came down unobserved, a small child around 10 years old witnesses their appearance and takes them for angels. As the landing party makes their way to the nearby city, they are followed by the child. As they walk through town, Spock makes his observations, pegging the planet's development as quite primitive, as evidenced by merchants' wares consisting of icons and charms that betray superstitious beliefs. As McCoy parts company with the other two in search of the closest thing to a hospital, Kirk is knocked off his feet by an old man carrying scrolls, who appears to be quickly moving away from pursuers. At that same time, the child spots the angels. The old man's scrolls hit the ground and unfurl, exposing a primitive diagram of the Gormanian solar system. 
Spock, seeing that the man is a primitive astronomer, attempts to engage him in conversation. The old man grabs his scrolls and departs. The pursuers take Kirk and Spock for heretics, since they were talking to the old man that apparently has been branded such. They turn out to be clerics, with weird cone-shaped head coverings that enforce the church's status quo with violence. They knock Kirk to the ground, so Spock steps in and takes out a few of them. Unfortunately, there is too many for Spock to handle, and he is eventually subdued. When his hood is removed, his pointed ears are exposed, and he is branded a devil. Meanwhile, McCoy enters what passes for a hospital and sees many people that are suffering respiratory ailments that could be caused by the gas. He is then accosted by Brother Donnell, who asks him if he has sins that are causing him suffering. McCoy introduces himself as a healer and quickly understands that the superstitious locals believe in Earth's middle-age oddity that sickness was God's punishment for sins. McCoy is left alone while the brother attends to a dying woman in another room. Using his tricorder, McCoy verifies one of the suffering patients is suffering from gas exposure. McCoy gives the man a shot of antidote and observes the almost immediate improvement. Suddenly, more clerics bust into the room accusing McCoy of sinful behavior. McCoy is brought to a building called the Cathedral, where Spock and Kirk are being held. A group of clerics are smashing their equipment when another one enters, carrying the child that followed the landing party. The child is also accused of being unpure when she states that the strangers are angels, not devils, since they came from the sky. They say the child is easily misled and that she must be purified and the devils will be executed at dawn. The girl lunges for the landing party's gear, thinking somehow they will help her. She is backed into a corner by the brutes. Then, suddenly, the astronomer we met earlier plucks her out of the room through an open window. The clerics rush out to the courtyard to capture them, but the heretic Gorman is smarter and uses his superior knowledge of the cathedral to take the child down unexpected hallways down to where the angels are being imprisoned. Gorman explains he was once a cleric himself and knows the cathedral inside and out. They come to Kirk and Spock's cell and give them the shattered remains of their equipment. The equipment is useless and they find out from Gorman that McCoy has been imprisoned too. Meanwhile, on the Enterprise, Scotty is making a log entry and worried about losing contact with the captain. He states the antidote is ready for deployment, but he dare not release it until he hears confirmation from the landing party that it is needed and whether it will work. Back on the planet, more old people and children are collapsing from the poisonous air. Kirk and Spock are able to escape their cell using wire from the communicator parts, to saw their way through a lock. They find McCoy's cell, but are forced to leave him when a contingent of clerics approach. They use Gorman's directions to escape from the cathedral through secret passages. They arrive at Gorman's house. Spock stays to work with Gorman in finding a way to signal the ship. Kirk and the lame little girl head to the river where they expect McCoy will be tested the hard way to see if he's a witch. 
Sure enough, at dawn, McCoy is tied to a heavy chair at the end of a long pole. He will be dunked under the water. If he drowns, he's not a witch. If he lives, he will have used witchcraft, and they will kill him. All quite scientific. Shirtless and pantless, Kirk is doing his best Tarzan impression, swimming to McCoy underwater and cuts him free with a knife. The locals pull the chair up and see it's empty. The search for McCoy is on. Downstream, Kirk has helped McCoy out of the water and to the base of a tree. No sooner are they catching their breath than the zealots are upon them, armed with clubs and pitchforks. For better or for worse, before a blow can be landed, the whole lot of them collapse to the the poisonous air. On the Enterprise, Ahura picks up a weak signal from Mr. Spock, telling them to release the antidote. They do so, and it disperses quickly. Kirk awakens later in Gorman's house, with McCoy seated in a chair next to him. The antidote worked. Kirk asks Spock how he was able to contact the ship. He explains that he could not fix the communicators, but he was able to fashion a simple, low-power radio using parts from Gorman's lab and some wiring from the communicators. Of course, he did that after he Vulcan neck-pinched Gorman, because he did not want to break the prime directive and show him too much about how to build a radio. Bones gave the little girl, Lori, a vitamin injection that cleared up her muscle ailment. No more limp. The landing party bid Gorman and Lori a found farewell. As they beam back to the Enterprise, Spock encourages Gorman to tell him that men like him will eventually lead his people out of the long night of superstition and into the dawn of reason and logic. I personally don't think he has a prayer on that planet, but thumbs up. The end. So, did you like it? I did like it. I thought it was good. I mean, they had the, uh, you know, Tiny Tim kind of character, and she, she got all better at the end, you know? Uh, I know it's complete manipulation, but, you know, it was a feel-good thing. I liked it. You think maybe this was originally written to be a time travel story uh, mm-hmm. where they actually travel back into the Middle Ages, but maybe they were persuaded not to come out and say that this was a, uh, an, uh, you know, this is how the church might have been at that time and things like that. Maybe. I think it's more of a parallel. I think it was always a parallel development story. Well, I think, I think, I think that's what it ended up being, but I just found it odd that they never mention God or any other religious figures. Uh, They always call them like the, the good one or the you know the the maker or whatever mm-hmm. uh, except for they actually do s- specify satan they they yeah. at first they, they at first they're kind of generic there to calling spock a demon and or right. a devil and things like that but then eventually do they do start saying you know that he's working for satan or somebody's working for satan and he's a, a Satanist and things like that, which which I thought was weird because it seemed like they were being so careful not to actually specify any type of religious deity or anything. And then all of a sudden, I guess Satan's okay to to actually call out by name or something. It just just seemed weird because they were, like I said, they were being so careful throughout the whole thing to not actually specify 
what kind of religious sect this was. The, yeah, of course it was pretty obvious they were, you know, I mean they, they were talking about the Catholic Church, which did do shit like this. Uh, but they're not the only religion that did stuff like this. I mean, yeah, absolutely. A lot of uh, a lot of religions are are have abused their power. Yeah, ex- at one point or another, and especially this middle the middle the Middle Ages. I mean, right. You had lots of, you know, poverty and famine and things like that, and then you had people taking advantage of their power, whether it be religious power or political power or whatever. Yep. Kings, etc. Yeah. Yep. So, anyways, I just thought it was odd that you know you obviously knew what the parallel was, and but they seem so careful not to actually say it, and then and then they and just then start. they do the Satan thing. Yeah. 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 But anyways, and obviously the the character I forgot his name. Uh, he's out. He's obviously Galileo. Gorman. Yeah, Gorman is is Galileo in our yep. history. Who, who at one time was a you know active participant, uh, you know, with the Pope and things like that until he fell out of favor with some of his radical ideas. Right. Um, so like uh, building telescopes and the world is round. And uh, <laughs> right, we revolve around the sun. The sun doesn't revolve around us. Right. So it, it, little things we take for granted now. Right. So uh, that's why I said obviously, I thought well maybe there, when when Mike Barr wrote this book, maybe it was originally going to be a time travel, but then they made it into a parallel Earth to I don't know deflect some of the sting that they were actually trying to make with the story I don't know it, it maybe possible I couldn't find any evidence of that that's 100% speculation you'd have to ask Mike Mike Barr yes I do like him we, this is like what the sixth book of his that we've reviewed he wrote uh, those uh, annuals all those years ago in the final voyage for DC right. right he did those the Deep Space Nine ones for Malibu that we've Actually done. Oh right. Okay. He did that. Um, the the Ponfar and Blood Fever two parter of Savick's backstory and her. Oh right. Um, right. Right. Her being um, linked to or what's the word? Betrothed to that uh, that other Vulcan. Right. Mm-hmm. So I really like his stuff, and I yeah, was really I, happy I, I to see that writer. he wrote this. And and this is this was a pretty good story. Well. You, they're only one issue apart, the two, and um, you know, comparing this one to the gnome one, it's like big difference, <laughs> big difference. I mean, even even the artistry was better. And by the way, that comment I made about Ohura looking so good, it was actually this issue, not the previous one. Uh, my mistake. Went okay. <laughs> hamana, hamana, hamana. So, which, which uh, part are you? <sighs> you know, I'm gonna have to look uh, again. You're going to have to. You're going to have to, my friend. Um, Is it the one where... Again, again, it's around the middle. And uh, let me see. Oh, okay. I, I see it. It's on page... It's just a, just a really pleasing shape. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Do you dig that? Scott, Is it, is it, is it, is it maybe better than, than Antennae? Uh, I don't know. They're all cartoons, dude. <laughs> oh, you should say that. I've always said that. That's always been my motto. 
<laughs> it's only cartoons, dude. That's been your motto. Anyways. Okay. Uh, I'd like to comment on how ridiculous Kirk's native outfit is. <laughs> he looks like what a doofus. He, he goes down there that's the, <laughs> the village idiot or something. <laughs> he's got this big orange hat that looks like a pumpkin or something. And he's got the little, little curly Q genie shoes. And he just looks ridiculous. I mean, at least Spock looks kind of cool. McCoy's okay. But Kirk gets to wear the buffoon outfit. <laughs> yeah, he has the big baggy pants, too. Yep. Yeah, he, he's got it all. <laughs> I mean, how how could they have not dressed him up more than look like an idiot? Yeah, maybe that's what they were going for. I say, you know, they never do that in the show. I'm sorry. <laughs> Usually, I mean, you know, you you you, you want to blend it with the natives, but always in a cool way. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was funny. I always, since we're on the subject of uh, wardrobe, uh, I thought the helmets that the clerics uh, wore. We're a little weird. I mean, it, look, you know, you know the, the stereotype about uh, Chinese farm workers and the rice fields or something with the big conical kind of uh, broad hat, right? I mean, that's what these look like. Only they they're, they're more steeply done and they have like slits in it, so their faces are completely covered by these uh, these kind of extended hats. Yeah, and uh, I just thought, well, why why did they do that? I mean, what? Well. I don't know. Again, if they if they were running around in red robes with hoods over their heads, it might look too much like <laughs> a little bit too much like the Spanish Inquisition. Exactly, and you never expect the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> no one expects the Spanish Inquisition. Thank you, Monty Python. Oh yes, that is a that's a great recurring routine. So uh, as I was reading this, I kept hearing you and Jim Curry's version of. Uh, of the Jim Curry? Jim Carrey. Oh. Of of the medieval time scene there in uh, fa- uh, Cable Guy. What? Oh, you know, just, really? Just because it was medieval times and it was stuck in my head the whole time. I Yeah, but I did not sound like Jim Carrey. No, you didn't. Your your version was okay, actually okay, better. Okay. okay, so you're hearkening back to Last week. the Cable Guy. Right. Yeah, we talked about it. I looked right. it up. And then that was before I actually started reading this, and so the whole time I'm reading this, I'm I'm picturing Jim Carrey at me medieval oh. times doing the uh, the Star Trek impression. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which I did uh, go ahead and and get access to that movie after last week, and watched it again, and it was good, but not as good as I remember. Yeah, I didn't watch the whole thing. I did. I did watch the. Uh, the medieval time scene. Well, that's the only part I watched. Oh, okay. And that's okay. what I was commenting. Okay, okay, okay. I, thought I didn't take the time to watch the whole thing. Okay. No. I'm saying that particular scene was not as funny as I re- remembered. It was still funny. Yeah. Jim Carrey's a comedy mastermind, but, well, usually. Some of his movies are lame, but generally speaking, it, he's pretty funny. Yeah. So. Anyways, let's let's talk about this comic and not Jim Carrey. I'm sorry I derailed us a little. You did. So go ahead, talk. Uh, Only thing I have. (laughs) I think I pretty much said everything else I was going to say. The the last thing I had was uh, in the captain's log at the beginning on the first page, Kirk says that uh, millions of people will die. And then on the next page, Spock and McCoy keep talking about how billions of people are going to die. 
Right. And uh, I don't know. I, I thought it was funny because I even was like, when I was reading it, I'm like, oh, I must have misread that captain's log. And I turned the page. Nope. Million. Flipped it. Billion. Billions. Yeah. But in fairness, um, he ta- he did talk about the most, when he talked about millions, he was talking about the most populous continent. Yeah. Or or just the ones that would actually be exposed to the gas. And, and McCoy and Spock were talking about the whole population of the planet. Right. And it's like, okay, do the math. If the most populous continent has a million people and you've got, what, billions of people, did they say? Billions or? No, they said, well, whatever. Yeah, the number was like 1.1 million, and then you turn the page and it was 1.1 billion. Oh, so well, they just it was like the exact same mistake. number, just one was million and one was billion. Yeah. But let's say they did mean billion. It's like, I think you'd have to have, I mean, if that's the most, you know, okay, so it's time to do a little high school algebra or something. But if the most populous <laughs> continent was a million, and then you've got, let's just say a billion. Right. Just to keep things even. Yeah. Um, that's a bunch of continents. 1,000 continents. That's a bunch of continents. At least 1,000. So, Probably, yeah. especially since the million was the most. Most populous, right. Yeah. Well, so. I think we're just splitting hairs there. We are. So the last thing I have is the dunking chair that they stick McCoy on. Uh, I thought that was that was odd. So not only do they have the same religious overtures that were from the Middle Ages, but they also have the same torture devices and yeah, right. architecture and clothing and everything. Right. But when they whipped Parallel out development, baby. When they whipped, when they whipped out the dunking chair, I was just laughing because <laughs> yeah. I just thought it was funny. Right, because I thought they in medieval times didn't they they uh, reserved the dunking chair for women normally. <laughs> but I uh, well maybe warlocks too. I don't know. Yeah, but I, I was, don't know, man. I was and and didn't they do the dunking stuff in like uh, in the in the states in the 1500s or something? Yeah, yeah, it was brought over. So okay, so so that they've been doing that for hundreds of years back in England as well as in the uh, colonies. Right. And and but I I think that it was not used just for the witch thing. I think it was more used for, like, from what from what I from what I've read and seen is it's like nagging women. <laughs> so ah! so you sorry you could actually <laughs> broke up a little bit on the recording. Yeah. So so a woman could actually be accused of nagging her neighbor, and that was one of the punishments: is that you that she would be put on this dunking stool and dunked. As punishment for being a gossip or being nagging or whatever, uh, which which I find funny that uh, that is rather unusual. What that is unusual. Well, that 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 seems pretty uh, you know pretty low in importance or a low offense for being dunked like that. Well, yeah, I mean, it just it just it's just sad that you know at one time women were. Considered that 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 you couldn't be nagging, otherwise you're going to get punished like this. Yeah, I mean, because especially since they love doing it so much, that's really it's really not fair. <laughs> oh, did I did I say that? Oh, I'm sorry, lady. Make sure I give this one to your wife. <laughs> you're talking about how beautiful Ahura uh, is, and now you're. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good. It was good art. I appreciate good art. <laughs> No, I'm just saying. It's just, it's just, you know, it's sad that one gender would think they were that much above another gender yeah, to yeah, yeah, yeah. 
put that type of uh, punishment onto somebody just because they felt like she was nagging or whatever. Yeah, but we have examples of, of worse going on today in some Middle Eastern countries. True. I mean, the fact that a father would kill, I mean, this is a homicide, his daughter because she did something, usually like with a boy or something, uh, which shamed the family. I mean, murder. And the law says that's okay. I mean, how primitive. I had, how I absolutely primitive. Oh, yeah. I mean, I knew that they used to do that kind of stuff. I didn't know no, it was still going No, they on. still do it. Is it? No, actually, was it a couple months ago? Hmm. There was a story about that happening. It's like, hey, he's hailed. Hey, you're you're upholding the uh, ways, my friend. You are a hero. Mm. Not not only are they not thrown in jail, they're they're hailed as a as a pillar of the community. It's crazy. It's a crazy world, man. Crazy. So the uh, the Middle Ages are not completely removed from this planet, unfortunately. No. Sad. Moving on. Anything else? I got nothing else, man. I liked I liked the comic. I did too. It's yeah been a pleasant surprise because the last few weeks they've been not so great. So this one was right. was actually really good. Right. Good stuff. All right. So you want to move on to the comic strip? Please. So this is the second to last comic strip arc. Number 19, and it actually has a title, The Retirement of Admiral Kirk. Uh, It was released in your daily papers uh, from May 15th, 1983 to October 15th, 1983. So the writer is Jerry Conway, and the artist is Dick Culpa. And these these two guys will be doing the last issue as well. All right, so it starts off at Starfleet Command in San Francisco. Admiral Kirk and Admiral Yaramoto are having a very heated conversation. Seems that the Enterprise has officially been assigned to Spock, and Kirk has been assigned to stay on planet. Yaramoto refers to this as permanent shore leave, which confused me a little bit because I always thought that shore leave was like vacation and not meaning that you're going to just work on the planet, but... Regardless of my misunderstanding of Starfleet lingo, Kirk is not too happy about this, and he actually resigns. So he and McCoy go to a local bar to blow off some steam when a patron named Morbus overhears that Kirk is looking for some private action and offers him command of his trader ship called Orion. Even after seeing the huge hunk of junk, uh, Kirk agrees, and McCoy decides to resign as well and join his friend. On the Enterprise, Spock is informed by Yaramoto of, of Kirk's decisions, uh, and Spock takes the news with cool disinterest. Scotty and the rest of the crew are shocked, and they're even more shocked and perturbed that Spock seems to not be taking the news harder. So I guess they forgot that Vulcans don't show emotions, because they're really upset that Spock's not crying. On the Orion, Kirk and McCoy are settling in. Uh, There's a few hiccups where Kirk slips and calls the ship Enterprise. Uh, Morbus shows them the ropes, uh, but he's reluctant to go into any detail about what the cargo is that they're actually carrying. Uh, Later that night, McCoy and Kirk 
plan to find out what's in those crates. While Kirk and Morbius, uh, or Morbus, is watching a holographic dancing girls, McCoy slips in and opens one of the crates. He's shocked to find whatever he sees, but he is attacked and injured by an alien guard before we, the viewer, can actually see what he saw. So Kirk is then told that McCoy has been injured. Uh, he's told that he must have hit his head on a falling pipe. Kirk suspects foul play, but cannot prove it. Uh, the alien doctor tells Kirk that McCoy will be okay, but he'll need to remain unconscious until the end of the mission. Kirk soon suspects that all the aliens are whispering behind his back. He goes to engineering under the guise of doing an inspection, but instead clicks a few buttons on a console without anybody seeing him. When he leaves engineering, he, uh, we, the reader, can overhear a couple aliens whispering that it's time to get rid of James T. Kirk. Back on Earth, Spock is given some information that about the Orions, uh, the ship Orion, not the species, uh, and about how it has had a shady past. So aboard the ship, uh, the Orion ship, uh, Kirk sneaks into the cargo hold to finally find out what's in the in those crates. Uh, he takes out a guard with a well-placed karate chop and opens the crate to find it packed with some small alien slaves. Uh, Morbus then shows up and threatens that it, uh, that it is time to get rid of the newly hired captain once and for all. Kirk states that uh, while he was in engineering, uh, those few little buttons he set was that he set the engines to overload. If he dies, then the correct code cannot be entered and, and would not be able to stop the chain reaction. So Morbus calls his bluff... Uh, when he pulls McCoy's lifeless body into the cargo room. Uh, so he basically states that if he goes, the ship goes, McCoy goes. So Kirk eventually relents, not wanting to kill his friend and also not to kill all the innocent slaves that are aboard. McCoy and Kirk are thrown into the brig until they can reach Epsilon 21. En route, the Orion is confronted and attacked uh, with just a warning shot by a suddenly appearing Enterprise Spock tells Ahura to inform the Orion to stand down or it will be attacked full uh, will be attacked in full Scotty, Sulu, and Ahura are shocked to hear this because they think that Kirk is still in command of the uh, Orion in the brig Kirk and McCoy have a discussion uh, with the slaves that are uh, that were also being kept there uh, it seems that these slaves are actually an advanced telepathic species that has allowed themselves to be in, uh, enslaved for the last hundred years they're doing this so that they can observe other species around the galaxy Kirk is then hauled up to the bridge uh, at the same time that Spock uh, about to order the crew to fire on the Orion Kirk refuses to contact Spock and stop him from destroying the slave ship. Morbus states that he and his crew will never surrender. Then the crew start voicing their disagreements with their leader's statements. Uh, this is due to some telepathic manipulation by the slaves. They're able to actually, and this is a quote, touch their minds and hearts. And this touching and... <laughs> this telepathic touching teaches the crew compassion. And another quote, a slave trader with compassion can no longer be a slave trader. So basically the crew then mutinies against um, Morbus. 
So Scotty and the crew on the Enterprise are worried that Spock's about to give the order when Kirk comes in and tells uh, Spock to break off the attack and that they now have control over the ship. The slaves then tell Kirk that Spock was never actually going to fire because the slaves and Spock have been in constant contact with them all along due to some Vulcan telepathy. Sometime later, Kirk uh, has regained his commission, and they're heading back to Earth. Scotty explains that he thought Kirk was very heartless the whole time, and yet Spock was never actually going to attack the ship. Spock makes a very odd comment that Vulcans are heartless, anatomically speaking, uh, which we know that that's not true, since the Vulcans have a very high heart rate, according to some random original series episodes. Uh, the story eventually ends with McCoy thinking that Kirk will, uh, will be heading for his desk job as soon as they arrive home. The end. The end. Yeah, as far as the hearts are concerned, I was thinking, don't Vulcans have like two hearts? And I was thinking, oh no, that's a Time Lord, isn't it? Oh, wait. Time Lords have two hearts. I think even Klingons right. have two hearts. Oh, Klingons have two hearts too? Well, everybody's got two hearts. What's the deal? Uh, but Vulcans don't. They just have one. I'm pretty sure they have one, because I remember okay. there's several episodes where they talk about how Vulcans have fast um, heart rates. Mm. Like when they're on those little those little ship, when, uh, those little bio beds that Spot, uh, McCoy had. Right. But uh, I, maybe they have another organ that, that does it, I don't know. Pretty sure it was a heart, though. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it would be. Yeah, uh, that that joke didn't make sense to me either, but everybody's laughing. Oh, got big laughs at the uh, at that one. Yeah, and, and I thought it was In funny because Vulcans have never, ex- you know, expressed any emotion, and yet all the crew is shocked that that Spock's not rolling on the ground crying that Kirk resigned. I just thought that was weird. Yeah, yeah. But especially at the end when he was getting ready to blow up the ship, I can understand that being odd for them. But you're right, at the beginning, when Spock was not displaying any emotion, I, I, I agree with you. What, what, what did they expect? He's a Vulcan. Right. Wailing and gnashing of teeth. Yes, exactly. Isn't that what Spock says? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, I like the uh, Wrath of Khan uniforms. Yeah, yeah, they're still looking good. Uh, the like the artwork on this one is a step up from previous comic strips, I think. Comic strips. Yes, it is. Not perfect, but not bad. Well, it's still, it's a daily newspaper, so... It's... Exactly. It's only so good but you can But the ships do. look good, I thought. I mean, <coughs> the Orion kind of looked like a cross between a Star Wars Y-Wing and then the yes. four nacelles of a of like the Stargazer or something from right. uh, Next Gen. Right. But uh, it, it just looked a little blocky, but it didn't look bad. Yeah. Um... There are certain uh, scenes or panels where they're drawing uh, Morbus. Uh, and I tell you, in some scenes, he looks like Zippy the Pinhead. Uh, <laughs> uh, except for all the eyes. Right. But the, you know, there, there's one where there's one shot where there's kind of shooting down on him, where you're not really, you can't really see his eyes too well. He, you know, his, his upturned collar, his uh, his weird. <laughs> Uh, almost conical shape, head. I mean, well, like like it kind of goes up higher than normal. Right. He looks like Zippy the Pinhead. 
Yeah, no, uh, I never would have thought that, but when you said that, I'm looking at like the very first picture of him when they're in the bar, and he looks just like him, <laughs> with that big smile. and Right. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Wow, that's funny. I thought it was kind of funny, speaking of funny, that that the alien engineers on the Orion had a Scottish accent. Yeah. But, you know, I, 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 you know, it was my, it was mild humor, but I thought it was, eh, it's kind of, that's kind of good. I like that. Yeah, I, I, like that. I didn't put that in the synopsis, but, but Kirk does mention that he's like, why do all, why do all engineers have a Scottish brogue, even when they're aliens? Right. Yeah, that's that's kind of funny. That was good. He hasn't met LaForge yet. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, does he ever? No, they never. They well, never yeah, that. in the Shatner books, he does. Oh God, forget about that. <laughs> <sighs> Anyways, I didn't like the the really the only part in the story that I did not like was no. aliens, the the slaves being in constant communication with Spock of all people. Mm. It just seemed yeah. random that you know they're in crates, they're in a ship. Kirk's going to be the one captaining the ship, and yet they reach out to Spock while they're still on Earth and stay in contact with him the whole time. Right. It's like, yeah, how'd they zoom in on Spock? I exactly. Mean, I, uh, is it just a random thing? They're like doing their telepathic thing, and they pick up uh, a, a you know Spock like uh, like like an old fashioned party line, like <laughs> the first telephones or something. Oh, hey, your name's Spock. Hey. Why, you know Kirk, too? Well, guess what? Yeah. No. Yeah. I, I agree with you. That, that was the one part where I was like, okay, now you've stretched it maybe a tad too far for credibility right. for me. Now, if the whole thing was uh, set up, including the Kirk thing, um, you know, quitting the Federation or the Starfleet and uh, getting on the ship personally, per- purposely to bust this guy, that would have made more sense. And that, but, that's what I saw. That's what I thought was going to happen the whole time. I kept yeah. waiting for it, for that for that to drop, right? Because I thought that's what he was doing there in engineering. That he was setting up a, uh, you know, setting up some sort of message to send to uh, Yamamoto to tell him, "Hey, you need to come, come get us." Right. But and save these people. But instead, he was able to somehow configure the engines to overload uh, by just. Pressing a couple of buttons. Without the engineers knowing. Right. And it isn't like he has ever seen that particular ship before. Or particularly know how their uh their their engines have been set up. And he's able to put some sort of code on it so that he has to then put in a counter code or whatever to yep. stop it. Just right. seemed like that's a lot of work for somebody to be doing. Uh, I mean, it looks like he almost does it like behind his back, like right. has his hand behind his back, and he's like pressing a few buttons. Uh, I was shocked when I found out that he was doing <laughs> he was able to do all that, <laughs> <laughs> and and the engineer didn't notice. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, would you think Scotty would not notice something like that? Right, rigging something for overload. I mean, wouldn't I don't know. And putting in a password. Yeah, that yeah. Kirk, he's a computer genius. Oh, you didn't know that? Okay, Donovan, are you muted? Yes, Ken. Of course I'm muted. <laughs> I stopped talking for two seconds. Of course it's mute. 
Go ahead, your your comments. I don't remember. No, I was just saying he did come up from engineering, as we've seen in other issues. Yeah. yeah. But no, you're absolutely right. It 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 it, it was just convenient to the plot. Right. Exactly. As was the telepathic aliens and. Yeah. Yeah. It, it it was an okay comic. I mean, it's better than some of the ones we've had lately, but it it had its flaws. No, overall, I thought it was pretty good. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and you know, as morbid as this might sound, is you know the Federation's you know mandate that they're going to seek out new life and new civilizations. I kind of liked seeing another species take on that. That you know, they're basically putting themselves in servitude, right? To see how other species around the galaxy treat you know what they see as lesser beings. Mm-hmm. Now, I, you know. Because we are who we are, we don't see that as being a a good way of exploring the galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> how, yes, how shall I put it? We don't really see it as a as a good way. But yes. I mean, but it is a way to do it, and and, you know. and somebody else pays your way, you know. Yeah, just all the you know transport, probably all the food they wanted, you know? all the food they wanted, or all the sure, food yeah. they were able to get. Or that they'd give them. Yeah. It's it's like an all inclusive kind of thing. But think about all the the poop they had to shovel out of the the stalls and stuff. Why is there as they're exploring the galaxy in their own unique way? Yeah. Anyways, I, I did I I liked that idea, although it didn't seem very practical practical to me. But mm-hmm. I thought it was an interesting take on it. Yeah. And. I don't think I had any other notes other than the, the whole thing about why did Morbus even need Kirk that was kind of a head scratcher too. I mean they tried Yeah, they somehow they him. were yeah, yeah. somehow they were able to get him because Captain Kirk was the captain of the ship. They didn't they didn't customs didn't check it or something. It's like, hmm. Yeah. That's the only thing they said. Yeah, that's what they said, but I don't buy it. That doesn't yeah. seem I don't buy it. I just don't buy it. Yeah. So, anyways, overall, art was good, I thought, and uh, the story was was good. It, it, it lead leads in straight into Wrath of Khan, I thought. You know, I've told you before. Oh. Come on, mute again. No, I've told you no, before yeah. that you know the big the big argument is that you know McCoy's comment in Wrath of Khan says that you need to take her back or whatever, and that kind of people don't. That's why people think that there wasn't a, fi- a second five-year mission. But uh, I think this, if this story happened and the, and the way where these people are in their lives, it kind of buys into his comment in the Wrath of Khan, don't you think? Yep. It tees it up. Yeah. I think. I think you're right. So, anyways, I thought it was good. Yep. Anything else? No. Okay, so uh, elsewhere in Star Trek, uh, this is October and December of 1981. There, there was nothing in November, no comic book. Um, in October, uh, when issue number 16 came out, there was a novel called The Klingon Gambit by Robert E. Vardaman. Basically, the plot is, is that the Enterprise goes against a Klingon ship called the Terror for the dis- a newly discovered uh, ancient city and during the encounter the crew start acting very strangely and 
this endangers the mission. So basically, I think it has Spock throwing temper tantrums and Chekhov disobeying orders and Kirk not being able to make a decision, things like that. You know, hmm. we've seen episodes similar to that. Right. I haven't read this one, but it was the uh, the second original novel in the uh, original series novel line, so uh, maybe I should give it a look one of these days. Uh, no comic book or any other expanded universe stuff came out in November, but in December, when issue number 17 came out, there was an original series, because that was all there was at this time, novel called The Covenant of the Crown by Howard Weinstein. And in that, Spock and McCoy are escorting a heir to a planet to her homeworld. When their shuttle is attacked and crashes on a barren planet, uh, there they're attacked by Klingons and some barbarian inhabitants of that planet. Uh, and the Klingons are trying to kill her because if they do, then they'll be able to take over her homeworld. And that will give them some leverage to then perhaps take over the Federation. Hmm. So that one actually looks pretty interesting. I'm, I have not read it, though. But I think the the girl has some sort of supernatural telepathic powers or something. Handy. So she's talking to Spock. She's what? The whole time. She's talking to Spock the whole time with her mind. Oh, yeah, yeah, while she's in a crate somewhere? Yes. Yeah. No, I don't think it's quite that. Oh, okay. But it did come out the same... The same at the same time, so oh, maybe. Hmm. All right, so next next week, end of an era, we're going to do uh, issue number eighteen of the original Marvel series, number five of the Untold Voyages, and the comic strip number twenty, which is a great one. <laughs> is it? You know already. That's right, you looked ahead. Yeah, I did. Alright, any anything else, Ken? No. I'm uh I'm good. I think uh I think this is just uh just fine. Episode number thirty nine, baby. In the can. Yeah, let's let's put her to bed. Okay. Well thanks for joining us everybody. Take care. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name stcomic. Second name book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.